Welcome to LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. I can't believe we're nearly coming to the end of Series 4 of the podcast. Where does the time go? So many wonderful guests, lots of laughs and emotions too. So we've put together some highlights from the series to relive some stories and musical discoveries, starting with the legendary Howard Shaw, composer of the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. And so talk to me a little bit about the process of starting to build the themes. Was it the fact that you've heard bits of the LPO or where do you start with writing for Lord of the Rings? One bar at a time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in my studio now. I write music every morning. I write with pencil and paper. When I was working on the score for Fellowship of the Ring initially at that point, I was doing the composition in a five, six line sketch And I'd write about 50 bars a day for film music. When I'm writing concert music, it's a much slower process. I'm probably writing about eight or 10 bars a day. And so I break the piece down. And, you know, as long as I'm writing composition and the pencil is on the page, then I'm composing and eventually it accumulates. You just go one one bar at a time. Sounds simple, right? And now the kind of moment I love on LPO Offstage where we all learn from each other. I also like the serenade, the Britain serenade for tenor, horn and strings. That's also, you know, a really interesting piece. That piece was one piece where I started to realise when you're close to the singer, the difference between production of the consonants and the vowels within words. Mm. As a horn player, as a wind player, that was really interesting when you understand that the vowel sound is everything and the consonant has little to do with the weight of a word, but yet is extremely important. And that has influenced my own playing. In fact, when I teach, where I try and get the my students or pupils to produce a sound on the downbeat rather than to produce the consonant of the sound, if you know what I mean. I think that that was something that a chorus master once said to the choir to get, I think it was, I can't remember what the word was, but say, for example, it was sanctus, that he'd get the production of the S out of the way before the downbeat so that the anctus of the word sanctus came down on the downbeat. And it made a huge difference to the clarity of the words that the choir were singing at the time. It's really, it's really something that you can learn from a singer all the time about your own instrument. Or a singer could remind you about certain things that you may have forgotten in the sort of run-of-the-mill rehearsals schedule. May I just leap in there, Yolanda, just yes. to say, uh, just to pick up something that both Johnny and Christine have said, just because that's very interesting to hear Johnny say that about uh, the way that the human voice and singing is adapted to the, what, how, where you play. And there is many the time that I use the reverse because I used to play the cello myself as a school kid, as a teenager, that I often refer to cello playing or in order to have an idea of legato. I talk a lot about the idea of connecting things in a, in a single bow, sometimes an endless single bow, but in order to get the idea of a phrase launching out and arriving somewhere and, and carrying thought to the end. Sometimes if your singing is literally just about text, word after word, it can become a bit leaden, a bit lumpy. But I borrow from orchestral playing, from instrumental playing, to encourage someone to sing long. 
baritone Roddy Williams there sharing some tips. Well, here on LPO Offstage, we also like to go for deep dives into some of the music the orchestra plays. So what's it actually like to play Shostakovich's epic 10th symphony? And Mark, what about for the brass section with those passages that really come through? How have you experienced it under different conductors and have you been told to play in different ways for different interpretations? Well, uh, something that Shostakovich sometimes writes in trombone parts, there's one bit, kind of which, which movement it's in, we're all in unison, really low down and grunty, and he writes fortissimo espressivo. When you're kind of like going... It's quite hard to think how you can make that sound expressive. Expressive. Um, and that I sounded remember, quite expressive to me. Thank you. I remember years ago doing some Shostakovich with with Bitchkov. I think Shostakovich five, I think. And there's the big trombone, bip bom, boppy, with massive orchestra, and it's three Fs. I remember the section really tearing into it, and him like saying, "No, no, no!" It needs to be espressivo, and it's like, how can we do that Ow. when we're all blowing really, really, really loud raspberries that are accented in in three Fs and and like block chords like this? So <laughs> some conductors kind of give me a bit of a hard time in that regard. Stuart, can you help me break down the DSCH motif, which is a recurring theme that comes through in the symphony? Well, it's basically his initials that are then transcribed to musical notes, you know. So it's a very personal motif of his name. How did he break it into notes? Because we don't have S and H. In German, I think, it translates into musical notes. Right. So... Da, 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 da. Those are his initials, you know, and that motif goes all the way through the symphony and it's hammered out by the horns right at the end. But it's going all the way through the symphony. So it's a very personal statement from him and obviously he invested himself in this piece very personally more than in any, in any other of his symphonies. Ah, oh, do go back and check out the whole of that episode if you can. Lots of personal and professional insights into an incredible piece. Violinist and pianist Julia Fisher next. Julia has been an artist in residence with the London Philharmonic during 2022. And I asked her, what actually is a cadenza? Julia, I wanted to touch on the idea of cadenzas, especially um, with Mozart. What's been your journey with cadenzas along the way and how do you feel about them now? Well, of course, I was brought up in a very conservative way. So I learned the the cadenzas, which are mandatory to learn for the concertos. And um, then when I recorded the concerti 2006, 2007, Jakob Kreitzberg made me wrote my own cadenzas and so I've played my own cadenzas since then. They've changed slightly. They have, Sometimes I come back to ideas I had at that time, then I have new ideas today. But I think for Mozart Concerti, since the cadenzas we are usually using are the ones by Josef Joachim, for example, um, those are violinists from a completely different period. It doesn't make sense to me that we would play cadenzas from somebody who did not live at the time of Mozart, but neither lives 
at my time. Uh, so I think it makes sense to either you find something from that time or you have to go and write something yourself today. So I make all my students write cadenzas for their Mozart concertos. Some are good, some are not so great, but um, <laughs> I think everybody should at least try it at some point. And even if you don't perform them in the end, you have to know how to do it. And for those of us listening, listening in on the classical music world, can you explain to me what a cadenza is and why you'd need to write your own? A cadenza, the idea of the composer was to give the soloist a moment for solo shining. So Mozart didn't write any cadenzas, neither for his piano concertos nor for his violin concertos. So there's only a fermata and you can do whatever you want to. And the idea is, of course, to reflect to the movement you've just played. But also the idea was to show off. I mean, that is a part of it, to show what you can do with the subjects and with the themes. And you can have it very small, you can have it very long. Beethoven wrote cadenzas for all his piano concertos, funny enough. So we do know what he wrote for those pieces, which is approximately the same period, just a little later. And also Beethoven wrote, for example, a cadenza for the Mozart D minor piano concerto. So we can see how Beethoven, what he did at that time for, for a Mozart concerto. And I find that very fascinating, very interesting. But there are actually no real rules. I mean, it would even be possible to play something completely modern in a Mozart concerto in the style how we compose today and then come back to Mozart. It would be possible. It's not that there's a law written that you can't do that. And so in the actual performance, the orchestra would stop and this is a time for the soloist to, yeah. to show peacock style what they do. <laughs> um, but then is it always pre-written or can it be improvised? On the it can be right improvised now? by people who can improvise. I can't. Yeah. yeah. And would the soloist play the cadenza during rehearsal, Richard? Or is it something that sometimes they might keep as a surprise to even wow the orchestra as well on the night? It's really at their discretion. Um, generally, I'd say that we tend to hear it most of the time in the general rehearsal on the day of the concert that is sometimes coming out of cadenza is not always the easiest thing for the conductor and orchestra one of the my favorite things listening to cadenza is always especially if it's one that's less known or one that is has been written by the performer is that it's not necessarily so well in the ears of the conductor who may have done the piece many times before but with different cadenzas and it can be very entertaining to see how we're going to get out of this together <laughs> uh, and you know and, and sometimes you see performers so in a few kind of false leads with with the way that they've written in the cadenza and yeah, you, you, you might feel that like you're going to start a when, bit when you need to pick up your instrument yeah. to get ready we've, we've all done it before you know yeah. where we pick up our instrument because we think there's uh, a, the uh, solo has started trilling yeah. so we think it's near the end of the cadenza <laughs> and we all sit up with our instrument and then we're like we no. very slowly <laughs> put our instruments back down when we realize we're only halfway through well, my worst fear is that the conductor is just going to at the last minute pick up his baton and okay here we go yeah. and we're all still sitting with our instruments yeah. down but i've experienced actually being a in the audience, sitting in the first row and seeing the conductor giving a false cue in the middle of a Beethoven piano concerto cadenza. And unfortunately, I was just so in shock that I screamed, no! <laughs> but it didn't help. The timpani still started, boom, boom, boom. And then they realized it's wrong. And yeah, it's, it, it was one of my least favorite moments. Oh, I can just imagine that cringeworthy, I tell you. I hope Julia has finally got over the shock. Now, one of the things I really like about this podcast is the chance to get a little bit technical. I just want to dig a little bit deeper for the layman in me just to really understand this. So during a piece, you will retune a drum, but how do you do that without affecting the piece? Because obviously you'd have to play it. 
Well, you need to get to know your own instrument. So you, there is a gauge that goes up and down on, on the side of the drum. You can set the indices on the gauge and there's a needle that will point. As uh, you tighten the skin, basically. As you tighten the skin, yeah. the, the needle will, will, will go up and, and you'll get the notes that you need on that drum. But it's not strictly, it can't be strictly accurate because the things are changing all the time and it, it's a guide. But it's a starting point so that at least in contemporary music you've got somewhere to start and then you but you often you can go around to you know set my f sharp up there and you go around and it's kind of oh that's way sharp so you've got to tune as you're playing and then no but i can't get it too much you know i've got to get down here now and get a b flat and that's out as well it's sort of it's a nightmare you land it is Fascinating. I wish the listeners could see you. I mean, we've got legs and arms moving. Simon's really like physically showing me how this happens. It yeah. looks exhausting. It is exhausting. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you shared that with us. Next time we see you in action, we will be really caring and really understanding about I mean, what's it's, happening. It's also, um, you know, during a piece where there's, a, there's only, say, two notes to play, say in, in classical repertoire, and you've got your C and G there, for instance. C doesn't stay, uh, you know, it's not the same C for everything. So you start in C major and then the piece might go into F major in the middle and then you've, you've got a slightly different C mm. there and you're doing your tempering the tuning. If, I'm, if this isn't, doesn't sound too no, pretentious, I am fascinating. you yep. can't, you just leave it, well, that's my C and G for the whole piece and I'm, I'm done. Yeah. I think of it much like the, um, the trombone section who are, I mean, all instruments are doing it, mm. particularly the winds, I suppose, do it with their by lipping notes up and down trumpets and and horns and the trombones actually do that as well as with their slides you see them constantly making tiny adjustments um, to make sure that their notes are in tune and they all sound and that the notes ring together so yes. you, you've got all that going on obviously not many trombones in a, in a classical piece that i've just mentioned but it does happen wow. when you play a note very loudly or if the orchestra is playing loudly you need a higher see than if you're playing quietly that kind of thing so you're constantly going up and down the whole time and what about a starring role for an instrument that is normally a bit more in the background lee you have this beautiful huge and loud instrument how often do you get to show off what you really can do and also how often are you told to sort of go against that and play softly and and supportingly I mean, the tuba can play softly. There's a lovely solo in Shostakovich's 13th Symphony. In fact, uh, the movement is called Fear. You have to play this beautiful line at pianissimo, legato, and any hint of volume, actually, you're no longer fearful, you know. You have to sort of keep it really low and quite scary, in a way. The tuba, I think, can be more scary if it's played slower and, and a, a very a low dynamic. I think that's a lovely colour. Do you mean that the music sounds scary or that it's scary to actually have to do it? Well, it's funny, that movement, I think it's movement number four, it's called Fear, and the next movement is called Careers. <laughs> so, I'll, so I'm always thinking, right, get this right, and then you carry on having a career. <laughs> anyway, there are times when you, you have to be very sotto voce. And Mahler one, there's a solo in Mahler's first symphony in the third movement, which is on high tessitura, and you have to do all you can to keep that 
dynamic extremely low like pianissimo or to you feels like three or four p's but because of the tessitura of the instrument and the large concert halls and what's followed before you which is a muted bass and a muted bassoon it always sounds extremely loud you have to find a way like paul says with ambushes with all sorts of things imagination to try and keep that extremely quiet if you can you know it's amazing what you say lee so you know you practice you know the solos and solos say in that sort of most lesser comfortable registers of the instrument and you practice at home and you think it's fine it's fine but it's amazing when you play in context mm. how you get caught up in the atmosphere yeah. and all of a sudden what if you play, even just breathing seems too loud and that's <laughs> the thing with manfred it was like the bete noir of bass clarinet solos because it can be really terrifying you could scare yourself witless basically <laughs> thinking about it but the thing is it's wonderful writing it's tchaikovsky it's beautiful writing but in the context, you have these, everything dies down. Mm. You've got these shimmering violins and everybody thinks, oh, it's going to be a romantic oboe solo or a heroic horn solo. No, it's some bloke, you know, <laughs> blowing down a bass clarinet. <laughs> oh, God, you know. As Lee said, he, sometimes you can't play, quite, it feels like you can't play quite enough, actually. Mm. The other thing about the context is you're playing it at home. You're choosing when to breathe and when to start playing. And it's very different when you're waiting for, for a solo and you're, you have no authority over when that's going to start. You have to breathe along with the music, obviously. It's very different from playing it in the front room. Just to add to that, Catherine, you know, as all of us in, in here, it, we've done this profession quite a few years, well over 30 years, you get to these solos and you think, why? I, I, I've tried to figure it out. Why is it so difficult? Mm. And then I thought, it's because you can never practice the moment. You can prepare, but the moment is the moment. You know, you find out really what it's all about at that particular moment. And if you did that particular piece five nights in a row, it will feel different every single evening because because you can't can't practice that. That's something that just you have to deal with rather than, than prepare it. Yeah. Yep, I know the feeling. Well, here's Howard Shaw again, revealing his passion for the vast project that is Lord of the Rings. And Howard, for you, for knowing that the piece is done, the film is released, it's epic, people are performing it and playing it all over the place. Was it finally finished for you with all those hours and sleepless nights? Were you, were you happy? Was there sort of like one more session? I wish I could have just got that. Yeah, they had to kind of drag me away from it. <laughs> At the end, I had written so much and I was so into working on it every day that they had to get me to stop. They had to pull me away from the desk. Each film took a year and then we did an extended version, which took another three months. So all told, it was three years and nine months of work uh, writing and uh, orchestrating, conducting it. Whew, three years and nine months. I tell you, it was interesting in that episode to find out that Howard Shaw actually wrote particular lines and melodies in Lord of the Rings for specific players in the orchestra. So do listen out for Stuart McElwain playing Piccolo when you're next watching the films. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. In this highlights episode from Series 4, we heard from composer Howard Shaw, horn player Johnny Ryan, baritone Roderick Williams, trombone player Mark Templeton, piccolo player Stuart McElwell, 
pianist and violinist Julia Fisher, viola player Richard Waters, violinist Peter Schoolman, timpanist Simon Carrington, tuba player Lisa Maclis, pianist Catherine Edwards and bass clarinet player Paul Richards. If you'd like to hear more from any of the musicians you heard today or haven't yet heard Lee's worst ever performance experience, you can check out the whole series wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time.